0: Welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast by Scott L. Wyatt, President of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript for today's podcast. Hi again, everyone, and welcome to Solutions for Higher Education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah University in Cedar City, Utah. I'm your host, Steve Meredith, and I'm joined in a little different part of our studio today, as
1: I always am, by President Wyatt. Scott, how are you today? (laughs) Terrific, thanks. We had to move out of the smaller studio so we could have six feet between four people. That's right. Instead of two.
0: So here we are being good examples. If only this were a video podcast, you could see what good examples we're being <laughs> of social distancing. Anyway, uh, this is a fun time of year for us because we finally um, – we we keep thinking in our daily work about all the hard things. and And right now, there are some very hard things in our world. But we, every summer, turn to a book club so that we can – Um, sharpen our minds and think about other things too. And summer seems to be the time to do it since we're all academics. And uh, so this is our first book for the 2020 Book Club, and I'm really excited. We've got two in-studio guests to talk about one of my very favorite books. Why don't you introduce our guests and the book?
1: Yeah, happy to do it. We've got two of our outstanding faculty members at Southern Utah University, Dr. Daniel Hatch and Dr. Tyler Stillman. Dr. Hatch has a PhD in clinical psychology, and Dr. Stillman in social psychology. Um, and with that, we're going to jump into Man's Search for Meaning. I can't think of two better individuals uh, with better background research to talk about this book. We would have invited the author, but he, he was unavailable. Yeah. Well, and... Since 2000. Victor Frank.
0: Two, right? Yeah. I think so. <laughs> yeah, for a while. So Scott and I have been talking about the fact when we decided that... The, I think this was the last book that we put on the list. And we put it on here because not only do we we both really like this book and and find a lot of meaning, not to crib too much from the title, but, but also because... Um, this seems to show up on reading lists for high school and college and even middle school. Um, there, there's something about the message contained in this book that that seems to be rather universal. So anyway, I didn't mean to jump in. I, uh, Tyler and Daniel, we're glad you're here. Good to be here.
2: Gl- glad to be here. And uh, I, I, just before we uh, started, Danny and I were comparing notes, and we both uh, have really old uh, well-used editions that are at least 20 years old. Yeah, I
3: think back, uh, it probably was in college when I first read this, but uh had a huge impact and it, it continues to have an impact in the things that I teach and the the focus of the teaching that I have.
1: There's, um, um, yeah, and, and this is a fun book to read again and again. This is one of those books that uh, when I went back and uh, went through it this week, Everything just kind of jumped out at me. It's like, wow, this is really—and in particular this summer. You know, it just seems like when hardships mount and difficulties arise and, um, and, in fact, some social distancing from people that we care about and spend a lot of time with, um, this book is such a great book to read and think about. Um, well, let's, let's jump into this. Sounds Who great. wants to start?
2: Well uh, let me make this observation which is that, that that the book is inspiring and and there's a lot there's a lot there to appreciate um, and I, I don't think this is a downer but it uh, one of the things that I appreciate about this book is that it helps to reorient you as to how bad things can get uh, which uh, helps us I think appreciate that we are, you know, as bad as things might be, uh, it's nothing compared to, uh, how bad things can get. Yeah. Yeah. I would echo that.
3: Uh, one of my clients, uh, as a therapist, I see clients occasionally and one of them had a statement on her wall that she would always comment on that it's never so bad that it couldn't get worse. Um, and I think it, it's reflected in that. And at first I, I kind of thought, no, that's, that's actually kind of terrible. But, um, the way that she thought about it was, uh, in, in a, in a manner of speaking gratitude, because she could appreciate, uh, some of the darker places she had been. And that helped her appreciate where she wasn't and where she was.
1: Yeah. And it's, it's, it's always the wrong thing to say to somebody when they've lost a child. It's a good thing. You didn't lose two. Sure. Um, but I, you know, e- even today, as we were having a whole lot of uh, challenging conversations about the university, I-, I have to pause every time and think, whatever our difficulties are, they are not as difficult as so many people around us, um, families and small businesses and all of these people that are, are having greater challenges. So there is a, an element of gratitude in that, isn't there? Sure.
2: Well let's jump into the meaning of life. So what's the meaning of life? Tyler? Well, I think the meaning of life is obviously there's a lot of room for individuals to um, construct their own ideas for for what their um, how they find meaning in life, but I think Generally speaking, meaning is derived from our relationships from other people, and I, I say that in part because that's that was, uh, Frankl's observation and um, his famous observation and what I think is one of the most beautiful passages, um, in the book where he talks about um, his his love for his wife and uh, the peace and joy that that brought him at at such a terrible time, um, but it wasn't, it's not, it wasn't love as a principle so much as it was his affection for an individual, right? And, and I think some of the research that I've done in, uh, in Meaning in Life, I, um, I've done a couple of papers that I think are relevant to this. So one that I want to mention is we asked uh, students um, at Florida State uh, when I was at uh, at Florida state what uh, what is it that makes your life meaningful? And we asked them that in many different ways uh, open ended what 's the most meaningful part of your life? Um, we could make it multiple choice and have the you know the ten most common sources of meaning where where students would would rank what 's meaningful and it really doesn 't matter how you ask the question. the answer is almost always family. Or family and friends. That's about 70-75% of, of when people respond. It is something. Um, it's, it's somebody. It's not really a principle. It's, it's a person or people.
1: Yeah, is that the way we spend our lives? Uh, seeking happiness all the time? Um, if we go seeking happiness, are we seeking what's going to bring us the most meaning? It's interesting that that's what they say. Um, Dan, you were talking about some of this positive psychology research, and
3: yeah, so you know, my experience in teaching positive psychology. So the focus of that class would be um, to use science uh, and the data that it brings us to tell us what um, is going to bring us the most happiness. And uh, part of that process in the class that I teach is um, we talk a lot about what things will likely bring us happiness and what things don't seem to. And so the very first day of class, I have my students write down the things that, you know, bring them the most joy and and inevitably, uh, just like Tyler's talking about, they, they bring up the relationships, the most meaningful relationships that they have in their lives. And, um, then we have, I think an interesting discussion about the circumstantial things in life, uh, that we think are meaningful and how much time we spend doing those things. Uh, So things that you might think about like your health or how much money you make, um, even going to school to some degree. Um, and I put up a chart, they have to guess, uh, which of the factors are likely to lead to the greatest amount of happiness. And I think the interesting part about it is that, um, the first time they do it, they're, they're almost always wrong. They guess wrong about which, which thing is going to bring them the most happiness. And uh, I think in, in the book, um, Dr. Frankel talks about this idea of the existential vacuum. And that is that um, we have an idea uh, that we need to find meaning, but when we don't have it, it creates a vacuum and our culture rushes in to fill that void. And then we end up dedicating our lives to that little or nothing that gets filled by that void. And um, when we look at the statistics, when it comes to things that make us happy, those circumstantial things, um, even like... Uh, a new car or, like I said, good health or, or money that we make, uh, they have an impact on our lives uh, for about a three-month period of time, and then it disappears. Um, it's called the hedonic treadmill. So one of the more famous studies is when um, an individual um, wins the lottery or when an individual uh, becomes quadriplegic or paraplegic. As you might imagine, we think it would have a huge impact on their happiness, um, and it does for about three to four months. And then their happiness goes back to a more stable level uh, and it's, it's because it's a circumstantial thing. Uh, but about 45% or so of our happiness uh, is accounted for by things like relationships and the very ideas that in this book they talk about, uh, particular love, um, are the things that bring us the most lasting joy and happiness.
1: Well, why is it that we know that relationships are the most important thing, but we end up spending most of our time trying to make money or buy things? That's a
2: really good question. I've got no answer. (laughs) (laughs) Well,
3: I I think there's sort of that, I think that the book uh, illustrates that idea that we, our culture is sort of set up in a consumer society in that way. Um, And, you know, there are a lot of advantages, obviously, to that kind of idea, Um, however, I think it it lends itself well to that kind of vacuum creating scenario that then we see it because of a consumerism and we think that that's, what's going to lead to happiness. Um, things like body image for instance, and, and money, um, on a a similar list when asked college students rated making money, uh, in their top three as the most important outcomes from college. And it beat out things like having a family and having a long-term relationship, um, so there's, there's an interesting kind of paradox that occurs, I think, that on the one hand, um, intuitively, we know that's the things that bring us the most happiness. But sometimes when we're sort of thinking about what's our, our goal, um, sometimes it leads us down a path to circumstances that don't actually fulfill that.
2: You know, it's true that people, you know, when they say, when they hear money doesn't bring happiness, a lot of people will respond, well, I, I would love to, to test that hypothesis right and and, uh, and and a lot of students when they graduate i think that's what they do they they set to work making money and it's only once they've achieved that goal that they that they realize it doesn't have the enduring value that they might expect and this is something that i've observed in the entrepreneurship center at southern utah university we have an entrepreneur leadership council that consists of very successful entrepreneurs who have made a lot of money and who spend their time volunteering on behalf of the university to help students uh student businesses be successful their focus is no longer on making money it's on on helping people get helping students get their their startups off the ground and i think part of that is that um you know what they had initially sought did not provide the the lasting value that something like um Support helping students does provide.
3: Yeah, you know, it's interesting. Um, we talk an awful lot about just the very first day of that positive psychology class about making money. And um, like you said, it's a problem I wish I had, uh, that I was making way too much and had to struggle with that. But uh, nonetheless, uh, there's an interesting relationship with how much money it takes to to make happiness occur. And uh it, it's it's interesting because what what happens is um when they crunch the numbers in the US and in particular in the Western United States, it's around sixty five to seventy thousand dollars. Uh you can even put a dollar amount on it, that any less than that and more money would make you happier. But after that point, more money does not make you any more happy. So I, you, you know, you can kind of when you ask the question, does money buy happiness, in a way it does up to a point. Um if you think about countries where they don't have potable water and they're thinking about where they're going to get their food for the next day, um, for sure money would make them a little bit more happy. But again, it just has diminishing returns and at some point it no longer does. And I think the beauty of this book is in part that it reminds you of how immaterial and ephemeral money actually is and how fast it can be stripped away that you know these men and women – one day were physicians in Victor Frankl's case, and the next day uh, were a number, and that, that, that in the blink of an eye that way, it, that stuff became meaningless. Um, so it, it kind of re-centers on the things that actually matter most.
1: I love this quote from uh, Dr. Frankl, uh, and this is going back to the question about the meaning of life. What's the, what's the point? And I guess you would ask yourself that question a lot when you're sitting in a concentration camp as a, as a Jew in Germany or some Austria or Poland or somewhere. It did not really matter what we expected from life, but rather what life expected from us. We needed to stop asking about the meaning of life and instead to think of ourselves as those who were being questioned by life, daily and hourly. Our answer must consist not in talk and meditation, but in right action and in right conduct. Life ultimately means taking the responsibility to find the right answer to its problems and to fulfill the task which it constantly sets for each individual. Um, I love that idea about stop asking um, what life has for us or what the meaning of it is and just start asking, what does life expect out of me? Right now
2: to me that 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 quote made me think of um, what it's like to face a blank page to me a blank page if if you're when you set to when you set out to write something um, to me, the most difficult sentence to write is the first one I find a blank page really intimidating. Um, in, in part because it can become anything and, uh, and a little bit, that's the difficulty of a blank page. And that's the difficulty of, of deciding, um, what meaning life has, uh, the, the options are, are, are sort of endless.
3: Yeah. When I, when I think about that, um, the task that life puts in front of you, um, it makes me think a lot. I've done some work with clients who have uh, had traumatic histories and um, it's a tough question to ask them, you know, what, what's the meaning uh, of something as uh, traumatic as let's say sexual abuse. Um, and, and they're forced to confront that question on a regular basis. And, uh, and, it, you know, and the book kind of helps you see, of course, they've they've got to find some kind of meaning in that. Uh and, that's, that's a pretty hard sell to help somebody consider or try to find the meaning that might be found in sexual abuse history. And there's a part in the book that I really love um, that I think really helps capture this idea of once meaning is found, then the suffering is definitely bearable. Uh, and he quotes a doctor. Uh, he says, uh, "'Once an elderly general practitioner consulted me "'because of his severe depression, He could not overcome the loss of his wife, who had died two years before, and whom he had loved above all else. Now how could I help him? What should I tell him? Well, I refrained from telling him anything, but instead confronted him with the question, What would have happened, doctor, if you had died first, and your wife would have had to survive you? Oh, he said, for her this would have been terrible, how how she would have suffered. Whereupon I replied, You see, doctor, such a suffering has been spared her, and it was you... Who have spared her this suffering to be sure at the price now that you now have to survive and mourn her and i i think you know again it, it's you know how would he answer that question and in that case as soon as he turned it around and said you're saving her that kind of suffering um because you're you're sort of taking on that burden now it changed it and made it meaningful it made it uh, a a definition of his love of his wife that he could do on a daily basis and so that meaning must be found and i think that's in part what he might mean by the tasks that are put in front of you on a daily basis and, and i think about one of my clients in particular um, she was struggling with this idea and uh, what she eventually came to was that uh, we do this thing called a genogram and you you kind of map out your family tree and we could see this cycle of sexual abuse that went back at least three generations, and I would suspect more than that even. And what she said is, it stops with me, that now that kind of history was nothing that my kids will have to deal with. And I'm, she said these words, I'm cleansing the family tree of that particular problem. And that was all the meaning that she needed. So suddenly those 18 years were worth it in a way for her and the suffering that she experienced because she could cleanse the family tree. So I think, you know, when Tyler says it's, it's unique individually, um, it, it must be, of course it has to be, because every person has their own set of tasks that life puts in front of them, and that's how they, they must find the meaning in that. Or, alternatively, get sucked into that existential vacuum and, and look for something that, that can't possibly provide the meaning.
1: So we, we uh, move a little bit away from the philosophical, um, answer from the wise guy sitting on top of the mountain and just move into the present and say, what is there that my meaning has right now for somebody? I think that's what you're saying.
3: I think these kinds of, um, moments in time, um, they force us to consider those things that matter most to us. Um, there's a theory in psychology. We called terror management theory and in, in a sense, when you're reminded of your mortality, it forces you to consider the things that matter most values in a sense. And in a way that might be one of the best things. I mean, when I think about how much more time I've spent playing board games with my kids and watching Lord of the Rings, as it turns out, um, I've, I've done that more. We've had more family dinners in the last month and a half, um, uh, than, we ever we've we've had in a long time, and and so, uh, while there's this massive amounts of pain and trauma that are occurring in the world, um, it's helped me at least reevaluate what matters most to me, and and turn to those relationships like Tyler was talking about earlier.
1: So Dan and Tyler, I've got a question um, that has been on my mind since reading this book and thinking it through again. Was Victor Frankel, a happier person because of his time in a concentration camp. Did he come out of that a better person, or a worse person, or the same? And 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 that answer, uh, how does that fit into our own lives?
2: My initial response would be that I doubt he was happier. Having experienced uh, firsthand how cruel people can be, but I, I think certainly more meaningful and more focused as to to what what he sought out of his life. What the the way I the way I've been thinking about this book the the past couple of days is that what Frankl did was to well I, I think the maybe the way to say it is that the normative way to handle malice is to, is to respond with malice. When, when somebody does something unkind, uh, the natural response of course, is to be unkind. And, and you know, you see this in sports, uh, an elbow begets an elbow. You see it on Twitter, uh, an insult begets an, an insult. And somehow, Somehow, there, there's a capacity that humans have to to instead of reflecting malice, to 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 receive it, to to be the recipient of something horrible, and somehow transform it into something positive, something um, that that uh, has has love and 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 gentleness and generosity. That's that's what he did was was sort of miraculous. And then, having done that, he then set out to systematize it, and and to make it so that other people could go could instead of reflecting malice for malice, take something. You know, I think the what is the the trifecta that he mentions? It's um it's pain, death, and uh and guilt. Those are the those are the three things that that uh, um that uh, sort of plague humanity, that those things can then be turned into something positive. That's, that's really, it's, uh, I, I like the word miraculous to describe that.
3: Yeah. I, I love that. Um, I remember a part in the book where he said the, the best of us didn't make it out of the the concentration camps. Um, and I think that's interesting to hear given, you know, just how amazing the book is and, and the insights that it delivers, um, to consider maybe some of those lost lives as well so when you ask that question is he a better person for it um, that that to me seems like the the right way to to frame it certainly he's a better person um, I like how you mentioned I don't know that he's happier right that that kind of trauma um, has an impact uh, and and in that sense is going to change him forever but his ability to find the meaning in it is um, I think makes him a better person and has taught him the kinds of coping mechanisms and uh, depth of understanding that couldn't be acquired in any other way. And so broadly speaking, cause cause it's the kind of question that you have to, when a client's sitting in front of you asking you about something traumatic that's happened to him, Um, I've had, I've worked with several combat veterans as well and, um, and it's it's hard to say to them. Yeah, you needed to have that particular experience happen, um, but what you can say is that what did you gain from that experience? Um, and I, I think that's
2: probably the right way to frame it. One one way <clears> that maybe to think about it is if you were to ask Frankl, you could um, you know you could you could be the person you were before you went into the concentration camp or you could be the person that you are after, which, which would you choose? Everything else held the same. Um, and my sense is he would, he would take the person that he became.
1: Because there was much more meaning in his life because he's made such a positive influence on so many people. Yes. Which, which is in some respects um, our definition of happy, right?
2: That's right, <laughs>
3: yeah, I think so.
1: I mean, I, in, in, in a prior life of mine, which goes back quite a long time, I was a felony prosecutor and, and prosecuted child sex abuse cases and homicide, and, and, um, and I'm thinking about that in, in this discussion with some of the people you're counseling with, uh, Dan, and, it's, and it, it does seem to me that that everybody emerges from significant negative events better or worse
3: yeah
2: and it's, and it's
1: their call and i think it's part of what victor frankl is saying is even in a even in a concentration camp you still have freedom to make choices
3: yeah i mean you can become a creature of circumstance uh, or a creator of circumstance based on the attitude that you take towards that that kind of challenge you know i think about um that ta- the tasks that are placed in front of us that we must deal with and I think a lot about how he he makes mention of this that if it's avoidable then you for, you should for sure avoid it um but it's it, it's that there is this inherent and uh, unavoidable sense that we are going to experience suffering and one interesting thing I think that happens in in I do a group therapy class and the first day everyone in that room kind of looks at each other and says yeah you guys all look really well put together you're you don't look like you have any problems um and i think there's a tremendous pressure when we have that perception nobody else has any problems because we all know we do have serious problems some of us uh and for sure we will have some kind of serious problem at some point in our lives and then we look at everyone else and think well they don't have any problems whatsoever and it's this light bulb moment in that particular class because they start to hear the stories of every person in the class and they realize that everyone's going through something very, very challenging and suddenly they're not alone and isolated because while it might not be the same exact pain, it's pain that they can, they can understand and relate to because they're going through something very similar. And so uh, I, I guess there is no chance that you'll get through life without that kind of suffering one way or another. So we're all going to have to figure out how to find meaning in suffering
2: that way. Well said. I, I think, too, uh, President, when you, when you mentioned that, when you said that uh, suffering makes people better or worse, Frankel several times, he refers to saints and swine. Those are, the, those are not average people. Uh, and I think that, that the saints and swine is a function of people um, being pulled either to be better or to be worse.
1: So, so let me... Um take a sidestep for a quick second. This, the second book that Steve and I have for this summer is called The Pacific Alone. And um, Victor Frankl talks about don't go seeking serious trauma in your life or stress, whatever. But if you get it, then try to make the best out of it. But next month's book is about a guy that intentionally imposed the most extreme amount of stress, anxiety, which led to, I think, post-traumatic stress disorder and everything else by launching off of uh, the coast of California in a 20-foot canoe and spending the next, what is it, 64 days? Mm -hmm. 64 days to get to Hawaii. It is an unbelievable story. But it's interesting how some people uh, today will, in fact, try to find a way to impose the maximum amount of crisis in their lives for the purpose of capturing something beautiful out of it. And and how does that fit in with the person who doesn't go seeking that experience but has the functional equivalent of that experience? Does the same beauty and character development and everything come out of it it's just an interesting question for me, and I,
3: um, I've always wondered about that. I think life has a funny way of turning experiences into meaningful experiences. Potentially, it's, you know. So, you know, I wouldn't want to uh, make assumptions about uh, that individual, uh, but I, I guess I I could guess and say, in some ways, that uh, he sought it, um, and regardless of the choice of seeking it, uh, life, I'm sure taught him some profound things that maybe he wanted and and plenty probably that he did not want to have happen, but because they occurred made him a better person. So, you know, maybe sometimes it's, it's, if we can help it, not making those choices, but regardless, um, of the choices that we do make, uh, inherently in the things that we do, there's going to be that kind of suffering and, and it is required as of us, I think, in those moments to try to figure out what the meaning that could be had from it.
1: Yeah, Ed, Ed writes that he, or Ed reported that he felt like he was imprisoned, that he wasn't going to get away, that he was probably going to die. He writes a will on the kayak, knowing that the kayak will survive and be found. And so he wrote his will on it. Um, it's a very, very small slice of what Victor Frankl lived through very small and different, self-imposed. But I think that both of them felt the same way at times, that they're not getting out.
2: On a a yet even smaller scale, I think the institutions in our society that we value as transformative are ones that people opt into uh, knowing that it is going to be very difficult and I, uh, two that come to mind are I would say the military you you know that you're going to have somebody screaming in your face it's gonna you're gonna be running laps or I don't know this is all I've seen in movies so <laughs> <laughs> yeah but I think that's right or yeah. or or you know if you're if you're getting if you're becoming a, a medical doctor um, uh, your 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 residency um, you know whatever it is that you go through these very difficult things that that people do opt into, knowing that that those that those will be transformative
1: it's It's hard to compare a concentration camp <laughs> um, with it's, medical yeah. school or a kayak adventure but but there is a small element that that is uh, comparable when seeking stress and crisis
3: I think it's interesting you know we. Our, our culture in some ways I think has moved away from this idea, but we have that kind of thing when we have these rites of passage that we go through and, you know, military would be a form of rite of passage. Mm-hmm. I think Utah culture has a, a rite of passage, uh, when, uh, young men and young women go on missions for instance. Um, but, but they are opportunities because of their adversity for that individual to learn and grow in profound ways. Um, and, and they're designed, I think, for that very reason, to help the individual find meaning in their life. And it's, it's one part, again, if I could read just a section that I love. He says, the existential vacuum manifests itself in a state of, in a state of boredom. Uh, and then he goes on to say that mankind was apparently doomed to vacillate eternally between the two extremes of distress and boredom. In actual fact, boredom is now causing and certainly bringing to psychiatrists more problems to solve than distress. And that's uh, a social commentary that I I think we see a bit in front of us um, as uh, young men. And and I think in some ways, to a lesser extent, young women struggle to figure out what they're going to do with their lives. For, for some reason, I think um, there's a bit more direction um, that that women seem to have and that manifests in the percentages of young women and young men who are going to college, for instance, now, as that kind of diverges a bit. Um, but I, I feel like that I've had enough, uh, young men in, in my classes really, really struggling to figure out what they're going to do. And I feel like it's that boredom component that for some reason may be a, a gender specific kind of thing that they're sort of really drawn to the video games and to, the technology kinds of things that uh, inevitably I I don't think are fulfilling for them. And they get sort of stuck in that, um, you know, that eddy, right? They get stuck in that particular pattern for some time. Something I've thought a lot about.
1: Let me me read another quote from Frankel. I think this is fun. Talking about happiness and and all that. Uh, A human being is not one in pursuit of happiness but rather in search of a reason to become happy. Last but not least, though actualizing the potential, meaning inherent and dormant in the given situation. So we find happiness not by pursuing happiness itself, but by pursuing something that uh, gives us a reason to be happy. The object of our search is different. So... I find a person that I want to make happy, and that makes me happy. I think that's how you started this out, Tyler.
2: Right, and I I think too. There's a he he captures that in his uh, ideas about hyper intention. That when if if what you're focused on is laughing, it's going to be hard to laugh. Right. That that uh, that focusing too much on an outcome is really um it becomes an obstacle uh to to that outcome and that it's it's really by uh I- embracing something larger than the self that that you can as a byproduct experience meaning and and happiness yeah that idea of the paradoxical intervention right that you
3: try to stay awake if you have a hard time falling asleep then you try to make sure you stay awake and and as you try to stay awake, you'll find that you can't and fall asleep. Um, and, you know, when, when you said that, I thought a lot about um, processes versus outcomes, that we get stuck a lot of times in the outcomes. We want a particular outcome. And, and as we focus so much in the, on the outcome, we sort of miss the process that, like, for instance, if you're skiing, um you know, the goal is to get to the lodge maybe at the bottom of the hill. But uh, if you got swept up by a helicopter and dropped off and didn't get to ski down the hill, it wouldn't be worth skiing, right? I mean, the whole point is to enjoy the the process in a way, the journey. And I think um, he makes that very clear in his book that it's the process uh, that we use to achieve the outcome that's actually where a lot of the meaning is had.
1: Steve, we've just kind of left you over in the corner here. That's where I'm at, at, your, at my best. <laughs> at
3: your
0: uh, no, honestly, that's it's yeah.
1: your six foot distance.
0: Yeah, I I have just really actually been enjoying and soaking up this discussion. I I've been actually thinking about a number of relatives from uh, you know the the generation and a half maybe uh, prior to mine that that served in World War II, and it it seemed to me always that the ones that saw more action had less to say about it. Um, that those who, you know, were uh, stateside or they were, uh, you know, in the some sort of non-combat role were fine to talk about it. And the ones that, that had served in planes or had served on ships or, you know, had seen combat were less likely to talk about it and seemingly, again, to me, more driven to make sure that their children never experienced anything like that. Um, that that they, they were, it was clear they were seared by whatever it was. They didn't really want to talk about it. And I, you know, that was probably a function of um, male roles and, and uh, thoughts about psychotherapy and other things that were uh, less than enlightened at the time. But, but I've, as I've thought about that. I, th- I think that there were a few that really personalized that experience and could not, it, it, it drove them so hard that it kind of broke them. And there were others that took that and did exactly what we've been discussing here, which is to say, you know what, I, I do want to provide for my children and I want to make sure that that we, um, that that they don't have the kind of Hardships that we had to face, but I do also want to teach them the value of work and I want to teach them the the value of um, of difficulty and um, and it's amazing to me how easy it is to see the difference between children who've been taught that the value of work and and to not automatically fear something versus People who have not had that, who've been, uh, you know, we we have a phrase in higher ed called helicopter parenting, right? That that they've been just sort of bubbled, and and although this is just tangentially related to our discussion, I've I've been um, th- there is no way in the world that you can say um, that what we've been through has been even remotely related to World War II or the Holocaust or in anything like that in terms of difficulty, or even the, the flu of 1918 that we're going to have a book about. But this has been one of those moments societally uh, and around the world that has caused this, this kind of stress, although not, again, not as impactful. I don't want to, uh, I'm not trying to draw inferences that this is as hard as any of the things we've been discussing. But what do you think will be the societal result of this, based on what we've been talking about, do you think people will derive meaning from this and propel forward, or are we going to become scared as a people and and pull in and and, uh, and the next time you know the next time it snows hard we're we're going to want to cancel class you know or or whatever I'm I'm curious as uh, since we're talking about this what what your thoughts
3: are you know just as you were talking about comparison of pain and kind of in a way struggling how do we compare the kinds of pain that we're experiencing and um that is another common experience in that group class that i teach um, is my pain as bad as your pain is and just this metaphor that one of the students came up with i thought was amazing uh he said whether i'm drowning in 10 feet of water or 100 feet of water the depth doesn't matter. I'm still drowning, and and maybe that's a way to make the comparisons that we maybe sometimes need to make about pain. Um, you know, while it isn't certainly the hundred or thousand feet of water that a Holocaust or a World War II might be, uh, pain is pain, and if you're drowning, uh, it, the the depth isn't really as important. But um, and
0: and there are a number of families right now that are going through. and Again, I don't, I don't pretend to know as much about psychology as either of you gentlemen but but when people list the most stressful things that can happen to a person in their lifetime divorce losing a job all of those and and we're seeing spikes of course in all of that right now
3: yeah I, I, Tyler and I were talking before uh, we got started today that I've had more clients coming in lately um and I would say it's related to COVID-19 um Although that's not what they're talking about, because I I think they're feeling the stress overall in their environment, and that stress is manifesting itself in the very individual ways that they have, and that's making them seek out services and help. So I, I think in a lot of ways, you know, sometimes we try to talk broadly about the stress of COVID, but it's probably, at least in my experience, a more individualized, whatever your current stressors are, this thing just makes those things worse. Uh, but to answer your question, um, man, I, I wish I wish I could predict that. Right uh, I, in the same way that uh, Viktor Frankl maybe had a hard time predicting who was going to respond to their environment um, and find meaning, or who was going to respond um, by becoming the the saint or the swine, so to speak. Um, man, I, I wish we had that kind of uh, ability to make those kinds of predictions. And and you know, in a small way, it's this kind of thing, I, I think, that reminds us of the possibilities that could happen if if we take advantage of this in the right kind of way. Um, you know, whether something crushes us or something that hardens us in a very positive way, uh, I think remains to be seen as a culture.
0: One of the things that, and President, I say this not at all to be seen as an employee, uh who is seeking to curry favor but one of my favorite things (laughs) when working with you is that you are relentlessly optimistic um and and as we are going through a uh, a a budget thing this summer i think everybody's aware that higher ed has not been immune to the uh, problems that have affected the rest of the american economy it it's is it safe to say, President, you're thinking that, that there are various levels of optimism versus pessimism among the members of the cabinet about about where we will likely see ourselves?
1: Yeah, for sure.
0: And yeah. and it's interesting to me that, that you always seem to end every conversation with, we will get through this and we will be stronger at the end. So to me, very much a a Frankel uh, sort of view of the world is that, and and well, I think you really believe that.
1: Well, I I do, and and part of it I think goes back to the beginning of my professional life when I was prosecuting capital murder cases, and spent an enormous amount of time with victims, mothers of of children who had been murdered, and and feeling. With them and helping them go through their own sense of hell, and ever since then, it's like, well, what's the worst problem I'm gonna face? It's not that bad. <laughs> I mean, I, I I think in a in a very real sense for me, a lot of my optimism has come from working through uh, extremely challenging experiences, very stressful. You know, when you're when you're doing a capital murder case, you're going up against the very best lawyers in the state. They don't let anybody else take those cases. So professionally, it's stressful. Emotionally, it's stressful. And you worry that if you don't win, that somebody's going to get free and it'll happen again. So I I think that's what it is a lot for me. Every time we have a very, very, very—and for me, it's a little bit vicarious. It was half vicarious, half stress for me. But I think every time we go through some crisis and come out on the other end seeing— um the good that that then the next crisis is a little bit easier to handle the the worst um the worst child abuse, child abuse case that i helped, dealt with um i had i had uh what i would describe as hardened calloused um cynical big city reporters calling to say if you don't if you can't find someone to take care of this little girl please let me know because I'd love to be her foster mother. And I'd think wow that's that's amazing that and and people would come into the office and bring gifts and quilts that they had put together themselves and and I, and I thought in the darkest moments of life uh, witnessing humanity's most ugly side I get to see the brightest side. And um, ugly and dark always makes bright, um, positive, more clear. So, so I, I think that's I think that's part of where my approach comes from. You
2: know, nine or ten years ago, there was an experience I was uh, peripheral to. I it was a, it was a, it was a tragedy, and it wasn't primarily my loss. Um, and, and the people who really did lose uh, in this experience um, were were very religious, and the way they talked about it was in very religious language. And my response at the time was to see that as an error that they were they were finding meaning where there was none and and I, I was just convinced that they were that they were finding meaning where 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 there wasn't any that there was no meaning to be derived from from this tragedy and and in a sense i was both right and wrong for me personally having found no meaning in that there was no growth for me but i think for the family that did lean on their faith and and i i think that act of of embracing that and finding meaning in that actually did that it did make it more tolerable and they came through that experience um better people i went through that same experience found no meaning in it and and experienced no growth and i think that's a little bit what we'll see here some people will find n- no meaning in it and and hopefully, um, Others of us will will attempt to heed the call that that Frankel uh, makes on our behalf and and respond.
3: You know, just to to piggyback on that a little bit, I think to to plug really what is occurring. I think right now, the discussion that we have and the the ideas that we share are ways that we can make meaning. They build relationships. They build connections. And. I think uh, just to, to make a plug for getting help, um, one of my favorite researchers, James Pennebaker, has a paradigm, a research paradigm where he has students write down the worst thing that's ever happened to them. That's literally what the instructions say. They have to spend 40 minutes every day for five days in a row writing the worst things that ever happened. And uh, then he had all kinds of outcome measures that he attached to it, and what he found was that they did not like doing it Uh, unequivocally. But 100% uh, of the time uh, afterwards, they benefited greatly because they were able to find meaning in it. That the dialogue itself helped them create meaning. And one of the questions that he asked in the instructions was, how did what happened to you impact who you are, who you were, and who you want to be? And I think the dialogues that we have like this one and the dialogues that could happen in the context of a therapy environment, uh, or with a close friend for that matter, they're the kinds of things that as we figure out how, what happened to us impacted who we were, who we are now and who we want to be, they change us and they get us the meaning that we want. And in some ways, um, to go back to what Steve was saying earlier, um, we don't want to talk usually about the worst things that happen to us. And I think that's the great irony that one of the best ways, and I can say empirically um, that it works to do it is to talk about it. Um, And in that sense, whether it's a professional that you get help from or a close friend, and as you consider whatever it is that's occurring in your own life, figuring out how it impacted who you are, who you were and who you want to be, I think starts to change it. Uh, from something that occurred into something that can can build you into the person that you want to be,
1: As we wrap this up, let's bring this home. and I, I think uh, Dan, you've kind of been there. but let's let's bring this home to our listeners um, and um, and assume that some of the people listening to this podcast and participating in this summer book club um, have lost uh, a loved one or a job. Or something something really significant, and they 're struggling so what would you, what would you tell them? Read this book, think about it carefully and
2: well it's, so I would say that uh, it, it's important it 's important to be honest about the event. I think that's one thing that that uh, Frankel said was it was the optimists the the eternal optimists that, that he found a little bit annoying because they were um, not rooted in reality. They died, right? They didn't make it. So root, root yourself in in reality, uh, and then I think f- what 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 I take from Frankel's book is um, is to try to turn things that are objectively negative into something that's positive. To instead of reflecting uh, negativity with negativity, to try to uh, transform it into something that's positive.
1: You know this; it, it causes us to reevaluate the definition of optimism, doesn't it? Because um, Frankel writes about those that said, "I'm going to be home by Christmas." I know I'm going to be home by Christmas. I know I'm going to be home. The super optimistic person, and then they're not, and they're so depressed. So, what you're what you're describing in in um, a healthy optimism is grounded in realism as well.
2: Right.
3: And I think I would add to that, um, you know, rose colored glasses and Pollyannaism isn't going to get you through because that isn't just like Tyler's saying, that isn't reality. So maybe I would make the distinction between optimism and and maybe hope. Um, I think hope is something that matters uh, profoundly and, and, And is in a way different from that Pollyannaism idea uh, that I'm going to be home maybe by Christmas. Um, Hope allows you, I think, a lot of latitude to be able to to continue to find meaning, even if you haven't found it yet. Uh, You might hope that you could find meaning. even though right in front of you, you don't see it, and and maybe you're not even sure how you could see it, but you you could certainly hope that you might be able to find meaning. And I think um, I don't know when he would say I'd be interested to ask that question. When when is it that you think you found meaning? And I guess I, I wouldn't be surprised if he didn't say, uh, well, not in that moment, uh, not in the middle of mm-hmm. this moment, uh, that that it occurred. I don't know. Maybe when he's writing the manuscript or. Or the long conversations that he talked about having, uh, with his wife in his mind, maybe some of that, that's where the hope started to happen. and And then later some of the meaning, but, but that you could hope that you could find meaning. And to begin with, that might be enough.
0: You've been listening to solutions for higher education, a podcast featuring Scott L. Wyatt, the president of Southern Utah university in Cedar city, Utah. Today, we've been discussing book number one of our 2020 Summer Book Club, Man's Search for Meaning by Viktor Frankl. We've been discussing it with Tyler Stillman and Daniel Hatch, two wonderful members of our SUU faculty, and we want to thank Daniel and Tyler for coming in today and spending some time with us. Our next book for June is The Pacific Alone by David Shively, and uh, it chronicles the story of Ed Gillette and his amazing self-powered kayak journey from California to Hawaii. I know you'll enjoy that. As always, we wish that you are well and happy, and we look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye. Thanks for listening to Solutions for Higher Education. To subscribe to this podcast, please visit www.suu.edu forward slash President's Podcast, where you will find both the audio and a written transcript of today's podcast. The original music for this podcast was composed by Jack Barton, a master's degree student in music technology at SUU. For more information about Southern Utah University, please visit www.suu.edu.